the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Puck Curtis. Today's guest is Puck Curtis. Um, Puck, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I am so happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's it's an honor to have you here. Um, you know, the reason that we really wanted to bring you on and talk to you is because um, we're seeing in the historical narrative that we've been studying um, in this early 16th century Italian uh, history, uh, a lot of overlap <laughs> between Spanish and Italian forces, and um, we wanted to learn a little bit more about Spanish fencing. And... Uh, you're the you're the expert, so we we figured we'd have you on and and let you enlighten us a little bit. I I, I should say I'm one of the experts. Outside of Spain, I do pretty good. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm happy to help with that. And I among I think, English speakers, you're probably I the yeah expert. I, I'm pretty good. At, I I think I'm one of two people in English that's published. Um, and I, I'm I live with one of the other ones. So <laughs> inside inside track. If you That's want right. to be like uh, get the inside track on Spanish historical research, my first piece of advice is to marry a golden age Spanish research PhD. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I put an I'll, I'll try and put an ad out for uh, an Italian equivalent for that. We'll see what I get. Uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> they put that on your OK Cupid profile. Yeah, you know, just like keep swiping until you find that one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh goodness! Yeah, so um, I guess you know this is um, it, it's it's really interesting. Um, I might I'm gonna jump ahead here because you know as this is a Bolognese podcast, I think my most interesting question. And sorry, Stephen, I'm gonna. <laughs> oh, you're killing me! I I know, but <laughs> all right. So from what we know about Manchiolino, or from what you know about Manchiolino, mm-hmm. why do you think that he of all the Bolognese authors? was able to capture the imagination of the Spanish court in Naples. Um, um, probably a bad thing to ask me, because like my Bolognese uh, details are all about 10, 15 years old. Um, I know that if we look at the first source text of the Destreza tradition, um, Carranza is reactive to that tradition, so he's aware and responding. He's critical, so... Um, when we look at Destreza, Destreza is a Reformation tradition, which is based on mm-hmm. the, f- the fencing which exists around it. So he's he's probably in the same class of fencing authors that we would consider, like people like Agrippa and Vigiani. These people are reformers of this early Renaissance style, which shows up in uh, like from uh, like from Fiori and Lichtenauer. We're moving away from that into something more structured, right? Kind of getting into modern fencing, essentially through rationality. Well, 
Maybe. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quibble a little bit with that. What I'll say is we're going to move into a classical period. So, um, and I'm going to differentiate class, classical, which is very theory-based, mm-hmm. with modern, which is more sporting. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I think from, or perhaps maybe from, like, your knowledge of, of just the history of, of Spain, um, you know, I think what's really interesting about Manciolino in particular is that his patron was uh, Don Luigi Fernandez de Cordoba, and he's the son-in-law of the great captain. Yeah. Um, and it, it's it's just wild to me that of all the people, you know, they, for some reason, you know, he ends up kind of there in Naples and with this this person that is incredibly famous, you know, uh, I think Don Luigi ended up going up to, or Don Luis, if, you know, we're using his Spanish name, but, you know, he's Luigi in, in Italy, but, you know, <laughs> he, he ends up going up and he treats with uh, um, Henry VIII. Uh, so he, he takes a trip up to the court of Henry VIII. He's there for a while, comes back down, um, ends up becoming the viceroy of Naples and then the ambassador to the Pope. And it's, I mean, it's a pretty prestigious position, and obviously with his father-in-law being who he was, it, it, it makes a lot of sense that he would have that kind of political weight. But for Manchilino, of all people, <laughs> to just kind of find himself, you know, sort of treating uh, with this this group, this sort of collective group, um, is super fascinating. It, it is. So I think that um, probably if you look at the Spanish tradition, they're reacting against the 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 Bolognese school and they're more in line with the Florentine school. Um, mm. So I don't know. So research on the Florentine school, the school coming out of Florence, is really only dropping within the last say five or ten years. I'm not sure if you're aware of some of that that work, but it's really interesting. Some yeah, we're pretty familiar I, with Dolcellini. There um, we go. That's our guy. Yeah, yeah Altoni, I think, is still untranslated and is kind of a mystery to us. It's been published um, in English, or sorry, in Italian. It's in Italian. It has, yeah. Yeah, I've got, and I've worked through the Anonimo Ricardiano, which seems to be in the similar vein um, of Altoni and, and, um, and Dociolini. Um, I can't say for certain, um, but it, it, it does seem like it, it fits within that style. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe I mean, look, we're all talking to each other and we sort of are kind of inside the loop on this, but maybe if we set this context for the people listening, it might help. So yeah, great idea. We, we've got these, these, um, early Renaissance Italians like Fiore and Vadi, And then we have the, the, the Darty school that comes in with the Bolognese tradition. And then on the other side, we've got people like Dolciolini um, who are working off Altoni's work. And Altoni, um, if we look at the common school of fencing in Spain, early fencing in Spain, it appears to be something like uh, either Darty school or it's like Altoni, and leaning one way or the other. And when Carranza shows up, um, he takes stuff that is clearly from Altoni's like he's taking German stuff, he's taking stuff that looks a lot like Altoni's stuff, and then he he washes it all um, with Aristotle and um, tries to clean it up. Um, 
before Carranza, the fencing masters of Spain, so many of them were illiterate that they would sign their names with an X. Oh, wow. Carranza, he comes through and he reforms fencing for the upper classes. So it's no longer a trade. It's something that the nobility do. And then after that, the idea that a fencing master would not be able to sign their name is anathema. Because you need to know Aristotle and you need to have a Renaissance education to teach fencing at that point. So just to give you some ideas, like Altoni, he describes three guards, like high, middle, and low. And if you look at Carranza, he describes three positions of the sword. And that's in um, high, middle, and low. He names them according to the angle of the arm. So he calls them obtuse, uh, right angle, and acute. And a lot of these things that we see in Altoni show up in the Destreza tradition, but they're all tidied up uh, and reframed through Aristotle. Some of this, so after Altoni, we get Dociolini. Dociolini, I know that you can't see the, uh, the image on the podcast, mm-hmm. but Dociolini's got a circle uh, with a triangle in it in his book. If you look at Carranza's book, his circle has a circle with a triangle in it. Right. So it, it looks very compelling <clears throat> to us um, that there's a lot of connective tissue between these two traditions. And like a lot of traditions, we're, we're evolving and we're adding and we're changing. So what is, what is this magic thing that Carranza does? And why is Carranza trying to do this stuff? If you look in his book, um, Carranza's big jam is the young men of Spain are wild and they're out of control and they're a menace to the society. Now, thankfully, in our time, there are no young men who are wild and out of control. We've largely got that solved. <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we don't we don't need to teach people fencing to make better individuals, except that we absolutely do. So, Carranza <laughs> just clearly states, look, this is all a gimmick, and what I'm really trying to do here is I'm trying to educate young men uh, so that they're better citizens. And I'm going to teach them a Renaissance education, and it's all just hand-waving to... For this one goal, and fencing is the wrapper, which is the bait. Um, That's just a as a sideline that could be just making explicit what is implicit in Manchelino. I know that you were talking about the connection between Manchelino and the Spanish court, and it could have been that particular connection of fencing as a, a form of erudition, as Manchelino presents it. Um, mm-hmm. rather than just dudes whacking each other with swords. That's absolutely so, what Carranza is about, yeah. So it could have been yeah. just making explicit, basically like you were saying, washing and making explicit what Manchelino was doing, which could have been solving the prime problem. In, in Now, was this problem throughout Spain, or was this in Castile? Uh, so Carranza perceived this as an issue in Spain. Car- okay. He's an interesting guy in a lot of different ways. Um but he was a captain in the cavalry during the war of Portuguese succession. Okay. And just like, so the, the last remaining heir in Portugal dies and Spain decides that they've got a claim to the throne. So they're going to move in. Naturally. And in the north of Spain, those battles were really brutal. And uh, they would sack cities. And sacking a city is horrible. I mean, 
Yeah. We, we see some of that today with Ukraine, right? But imagine that that's state-sanctioned and nobody has a problem with it. Oh, in yeah. The, in the southern part of Spain, um, there's Carranza and there's this guy named the Duke of Medina Sidonia. And um, Carranza serves in his household. Okay. And people trusted Carranza's words so much in Spain that they would surrender cities to him. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was he was that well respected. There was just something about this guy. And um, the, I I give a talk on Carranza as a person, and I talk about um, like this word macho. It mm-hmm. originally meant elite masculinity, and not in a negative way like it is today. Right. And Carranza is this like he's a performance of elite masculinity in the Spanish age. He is like the Captain America of Spain. And there was I love this, it. I love it. There was something about this guy that people responded to, even when he was really young. His nobility, uh, he was a lower-ranking nobility called an Hidalgo. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, attached to the family of this other uh, duke, and they would hold dinner for him because they wanted their kids to be around Carranza because hmm. there was just He's something just a great about role him. model. He was, Great. yeah. There, he just had this mojo. <clears throat> so he serves the Duke of Medina Sidonia in the War of Portuguese, uh, Portugal, the the Succession Crisis. Uh, they take Portugal, and um, eventually he decides he's going to leave the service of the Duke. He writes his book, and he ends up in the uh, the Americas in Hon- uh, Honduras. So if you like to really get the Spanish going. Tell them that Carranza, the founder of the great Destreza tradition, uh, died in American. He <laughs> <laughs> was a Honduran. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's where he's, he died, and he was buried in the Americas. So I think we we can claim him. Okay. Sounds legit to me, man. Cool. <laughs> I bet they'll love that. Uh, yeah, I keep trying that one out on them. I, I get mixed results. <laughs> I, get, I, I get some faces. Clearly, you haven't been killed for it yet, so that's a big improvement. Not, not yet. I'm, I'm on really good terms with all that crowd. I, I, I love them to death. And they've been very, very generous. Um, when I was there, I studied there with them uh, briefly in 2008. Uh, my wife, uh, Dr. Mary Curtis, was over there uh, doing research for her Fulbright scholarship on the tradition. Mm-hmm. And when I trained with the Spanish fencers in the club, they were, uh, they just wanted us to share this tradition with everybody. They thought right. that the tradition was beautiful and that it was worthy of of everybody trying this thing. Kind of how we feel about the Bolognese. Yeah. 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 Cool. I, I derailed your question, didn't I? Uh, I think we, no, we, were, no, no. we were just I, going. I, I think was that was, yeah, yeah. That, was uh, that was wonderful. Um, you know, that was a, a lot of really awesome insight into, you know, something that I don't know a lot about, so I, I learned a lot from that. That was that was really great. Um, so let's talk about fencing. Um, you're particularly known for your work with La Verdadera Destreza. Sure. Um, do you describe your fencing background, or uh, could you describe your fencing background, and what led you to your interest in LVD? Uh, yeah, so I started in the mid-'90s in the SCA, and the fencing there – I love the SCA. It's free-form fencing, very little training. So as you get better, um, you get better uh, by experience rather than by practice or training or expertise. You can find people there 
or in the 90s, you couldn't find people there who had good pedagogy. Um, and so I got good enough to do well. And then in the, in the mid-90s, I found this tradition, uh, the Spanish tradition. And we started researching it. And the early work that we did was awful. I mean, it's always awful. <laughs> and I, I, being like one of these first-generation researchers, I think the strongest recommendation I can give to people is appreciate that you have a big community today um, because I could be wrong for 10 years and not know it back then. Right? Oh. <laughs> I, I, remember, yeah. I remember getting emails from Spain saying, this is wrong, and I'm like, oh, man. And that stuff is a gut punch. And yeah. so you, you need to develop this ability to bounce off being wrong in a good right. way. Yeah. Uh, and that's really important. Today we have a community, and so we're constantly being challenged and tested, and our ideas, like our bad ideas, are resolved much more quickly. But back then, you could hold on to a bad idea for a long time. So I, I had been fencing in the SCA. We found this new tradition, and then um, people like Bob Sharon and William Wilson and Jarek Swanger show up, and they start translating these books and I started teaching Italian fencing from Cap Ferro based on the Swanger and Wilson mm -hmm. translation, which was what everybody was doing in the 90s. And what I found was I was teaching these kids in the park in Tulsa. And like at that point, the homeschool families found out there was some random dude teaching fencing in the park. And so they all showed up with their kids. <laughs> nice, nice. Kids, this Italian fencing from the 1600s. And what happened was they all got a lot better, a lot faster than I did. And right. so instead of teaching like the SCA taught, I began to get a real strong faith in the idea of system teaching. Like if you teach from a system and that system is cohesive and coherent, people get better a lot faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so my kids were getting good. I was getting good. Um, the dot-com crash happens, and we end up in California. And at that point, I'm, I'm really a strong advocate for teaching from systems, and I happen to just land in the backyard of the uh, San Jose Fencing Masters program. And that was founded okay. by uh, Maestro William Gogler. He studied mm -hmm. under Naughty, and um, you know their lineage goes back to the 1600s. So suddenly I've got access. I've got, I've got a rapier system, and I've gotten pretty good at it. Now what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to teach it better. So I go to this fencing pedagogy program, and I learn what it means to teach fencing. And as somebody who had done historical fencing, the big, like there's a lot of information there. The biggest thing that I got out of that was um, when we were reading Science of Fencing, fencing which was Gogler's book, mm -hmm. there was so much that we were getting from the tradition on the floor that wasn't in the book. And that, that the delta, the difference between mm -hmm. the knowledge present in that room and the little that we had in the book was enormous. So we think about all that, we call it floor knowledge. Mm -hmm. The floor knowledge that has been lost for these historical traditions, it's priceless. And we don't have that. We're rebuilding all of that floor knowledge, and we're, we're building a whole new generation of teachers and instructors, and the knowledge that they learn uh, is priceless. So like, you are, you're probably teaching tradition now, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you've yeah. Got, you, you, we have to have a mechanism by which we transfer the, that detailed mm -hmm. pedagogy onto the next generation. That's, 
So I learned pedagogy. I took a lot of hits on my body teaching this tradition. And then I take all of that and I say, how can I apply this to these historical traditions? And what are the things that I need to ensure that these traditions survive? That's, that's everything I get from the Sonoma program. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's pretty moving, man. Um, I think, uh, I think maybe one of the cool things, uh, about that is the science or the, I guess the process of making that floor knowledge is pretty fun and exciting. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, I just, I love that even though, you know, every right thing seems to be the result of doing every wrong thing once and learning till you finally arrive at the truth. That's, I think one of the intoxicating things about the whole HEMA process. Oh yeah, I, I've done things wrong in so many different ways. If I if I was fragile or if I held on to my ideas and didn't let the bad ideas go, um, I, I would not be where I am today. <laughs> That's one of the great things about being married. You learn yeah. to let go of your bad ideas pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Just just apologize, move yeah. on. Yeah, you save or yourself a lot of time. Buy a comfortable couch. <laughs> <laughs> so as you had that experience of going from a historical background into something that had that development of floor knowledge and then going back into developing a system and sort of developing your own floor knowledge as you were exploring a system that was new to you, what were some of the things that you found were either missing or that you were able to start to develop or maybe perhaps better understood from when you were studying Italian fencing to when you started developing your knowledge and understanding of the Spanish system? There's a lot of subtle things. So as part of my examination process, because I, I tested for instructor, provost, and master. As part of that, what I had to be able to do was I had to be able to visualize fencing with my hands behind my back and describe it. So I had to develop a common language of fencing that we would all share that was highly technical. Uh, so that includes things like timing and structure and uh, what are the phases of a, of a fight and how do you get somebody to reveal their tendencies, right? How, and then how do you coach those things? Um, these are all really important. And if you go to a historical text and you bring those with you, they're really valuable. So any. Any virtue is a two-sided coin. Every time you get a virtue, you get a virtue and a weakness, mm -hmm. right? So I have, this, I have this fencing knowledge, right, which is a virtue, but it also gives me a bias, right? I flip mm -hmm. that coin over, I have virtue and bias. So I need to be mindful that I go into this, these old texts with a lot of information. That can be really helpful. And then I also have to really closely examine my biases. Um, but let me think if I can think of a specific one. That is really helpful. Cueing. Let's say cueing. Okay. All right. So what is cueing and why is it important? I learned a lot of very specific cueing on the floor as a teacher. So in order to test for an instructor, we, we were doing a thousand lunges a day on the student side. And so that meant when I was on the instructor side, I was receiving a thousand touches a day. Uh, once you've taught the, a tradition long enough that you've taken 10,000 hits on your body, uh, that changes how you see the tradition. Um, we talk about cueing, right? And so cueing is to show the student something which is accurate 
to their needs. So the the strength and resistance in my arm mm-hmm. might tell a student to glide along the blade, but when my arm relaxes, it tells them to release and cut. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there are all these <clears throat> subtle pieces of teaching that you do with your body and with your voice and with the way that you present yourself uh, that really matter. All of that can translate over to historical work. Um, then I was taught how to structure lessons, how to how to control a room, how to manage safety. All of these things translate immediately. Some of the mechanics don't translate. Like I'm I'm not going to use one-handed sword techniques with a great sword. <laughs> right. But yeah. Still, like the flow of a fight, what is offensive, what is defensive, what's counter-offensive? Can I structure those things? Um, that all that all translates. That's awesome. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. I feel like I'm getting smarter just listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) Or or you could be getting dumber. (laughs) Like dumb people feel smart. (laughs) All right. Cool. All right. So queuing, that's really interesting. So queuing is basically... Uh, from an instructor's point of view, when you do a thing to elicit a certain response from your student to teach them the thing that you're trying to teach them. Yeah, yeah. Gogler has this thing. He says the lesson should be the mirror of combat. And so when I think about cueing or what I show the student, we go through these stages, right? Okay. I'm going to teach technique first. And so technique is really structured, right? And new people need a lot of structure. They like right. the rules. Right. And so you lay down all these rules, you have a lot of control over everything that they do, and you walk them through it. I want you to do this, I want you to do A, and then I want you to do B, and then I want you to do C. Listen to my voice, look at my body, go. A, B, C. As they get more comfortable, I start pulling out supports for them. So instead of telling them exactly what to do, they're going to get my hand held up, showing them the palm, and then I'm going to say go in Italian or Spanish, depending on which tradition I'm teaching. And then they're expected to do all those things. And then I'm going to continue raising the difficulty and shaving away layers of artificiality so that they're getting closer and closer to combat. I'm going to start tricking them and throwing in changes so that they're never quite predictive, rather they're mm-hmm. responsive. All of these things uh, translate. And so we, we get this idea of progression of difficulty mm-hmm. in the pedagogy that we're showing them and the cueing. Okay. Right, so that makes sense. So structuring your curriculum essentially from the training wheels to fencing. Yeah. Kind of removing su- the supports along the way. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, cool. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, these days I'm more in demand for pedagogy training and how to certify instructors than I am for the tradition. The tradi- I think the tradition, the Spanish tradition, is pretty safe. Right. Play the pl- uh, now, um, but the place that I'm useful is um, a school wants to certify an instructor. Well, what does that look like? Or we need to put together an advanced pedagogy program. What does that look like? Well, I, I, I know that. I can help with that. Cool. I, I wasn't aware that that was even a thing right now. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. Um, great. Uh, do you want me to take a few now, Joshua? Sure. Yeah, go for it. So uh, I crossed a few off. Let's move on to getting it towards the Italian here. So in your opinion, how did early LVD differ from contemporaneous forms of Italian fencing? Oh, yeah. So you have to think about like Carranza's role as a reformer 
Mm -hmm. And um, like the easiest way to differentiate between Italian fencing and Spanish fencing for true school fencing, the Spanish, the fundamental principle of Italian fencing is to strike without being struck. Right. This, right. That's that's how it's defined in in a lot of the the rapier texts. The fundamental principle of Spanish fencing is to defend yourself and strike while defended. It's almost the same statement, but the focus is really different. Right? So Sounds like Manchilino. Yeah, well, the Spanish the, the that strike what and uh, without being struck is really aggressive. And defend right. and strike while defend, defended. It, it takes that whole thing and flips it. Like we we're not here to to kill ourselves. We're, we're here right. to protect ourselves and then wound the adversary. So it's more like control their weapon and let them run themselves upon it if they insist, as opposed to find the safe opening or find the opening and get it. Yeah. So I I was raised in Oklahoma, so I sometimes like distill things down into Okie speak. Okay, let's hear the okay version of it. <laughs> Don't be stupid. What is it? Don't, Don't be stupid. stupid. Don't, Don't be, be stupid. stupid. Got it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, Manchiolino, I, I find that interesting because Manchiolino has a, a similar approach in that, and I, I see this throughout his pedagogy where, um, and the way that he sets up his, and structures his overall curriculum, where he gives a statement in his introduction, his general advice for fencing where he says that every defense should be followed with an offense and every offense should be followed with a defense and that you should always defend yourself going forward. Mm -hmm. As in like you're making this progressive approach into your opponent, but you're also doing so in a way where, you know, you're not, you're not over committing in your attacks by any means. And you, you see through throughout his techniques and everything like that, that it is still very much a defensive style and system um, where even with his, his book on provocations, his, his book one, uh, where he gives a series of provocations, it seems like a lot more of his creativity is actually baked into his defense. And his defense is is very much, you know, it's it's relatively simple in terms of transitioning between cordia de testa, cordia de faccia, and, you know, using a mezzamandrito. Those are basically his three main defenses. Um, but I, I, I think that that's that's kind of interesting in that I don't know if I see that specifically with, with authors like Murazzo and the Anonimo as much, maybe a little bit more with the Anonimo than, than Murazzo, but it does seem like there's that differentiation between Manchiolino and the other Italian authors. And maybe that's, that's kind of the, the crux in the split. And maybe that's why Manchiolino was, uh, you know, favored by the Spanish. I don't know. I, it, it certainly makes some sense. Uh, like, the Spanish way of entering into a sword fight, right? Like if we're out of distance, we have all the time in the world. The, right. We have an economy of movement. And, and as you get closer to the adversary, every movement costs more. Right. Right. Up, up to death. That's the final cost. Right. So when we're well outside of distance, movements are free. Right. And when we get into that distance, essentially like wide <laughs> measure, right? Then we're going to show you the point, put it on your body, maybe try to talk you out of this fight. Um, if I feel like I need to move closer, then I'm going to cover your sword with mine, and then I'm going to step into this middle space where we're much closer, but I have a really strong advantage. It's analogous to, like, in boxing to the pocket. Like, if you can get control mm -hmm. of the adversary's sword and step into the pocket, you become a powerhouse. It's essentially stringere in the, yeah, in, in yeah, the Bolognese is, tradition. Yeah. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's it's like Stranger Day, but at Missouri Strata, right? So we get right. we take a step in. We're dominant. We're close. Right. And at that point, if I extend my point, I could strike you with a movement of the hand. Right. Um, and then um, I can force action. So um, we don't really faint in the Spanish tradition. We're mm-hmm. not supposed to act on information that we don't have. Mm-hmm. That being said, we're going to threaten you with the point. <laughs> right. And then well, when your arm moves, we're going to move too, right? So is that there's a big discussion about whether or not that's actually a feint. Um, sometimes what we'll say is we're going to do things that are, are vulgar. Or vulgar is like bad fencing. Mm-hmm. But when we do them, we're going to do them by the truth. So when I step into this middle place, I've got your sword and I'm quite close, and I put my sword on your eye, uh, I feel like I've got a good enough control that that's pretty safe. Got it. That I can provoke you, and then when you defend, I'm going to change and attack a different target. Sounds pretty similar to the Bolognese approach, as best I understand, for the sword alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly, because it... You know, when you're fighting sword alone, that point commands your attention pretty well. Unless somebody's in a really committed to a wide play and can beat it aside well, it's uh, that point is really the game. It's really strange in the Spanish tradition. We are a motion palette system. So we're going to use the same motion for different things. So sometimes we, if you're making a big cut, we'll put the point on you mm-hmm. in the preparation of the cut. Mm-hmm. And that's considered defensive because we're just there to disrupt. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. If if I'm in the middle in that pocket and I put the point on you, we we call it the something else. But really, both of those are trying to get you to move and to put you in obedience, as Fabris would call it. Right. Yeah, that that sounds pretty similar too. I you know, I I'm listening to you talk and I'm just sitting here thinking about all of the, the Bolognese tactical ideas in my head and how like it, they seem so analogous and, and just kind of like they're kind of feeding off one another, at least kind of touching on the same principles and ideas. Um, I've got you know, some differences that might be interesting to you. Maybe. Okay. So let me, let me lay out my understanding of, of um, darty school timing, right? So the way that I understand it is it goes guard, movement, guard. Right? And that's how we mm-hmm. lock in our time. When we look at the Spanish timing, um, they're a vector-based system. I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. it okay. It's based on the German tradition. So we have before, during, and after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, we can take take a fencing action. Like, let's say that I'm going to beat the sword mm-hmm. on the inside line, and then I'm going to redirect with a thrust. Okay. Now we're going to take... That's like a Lego structure, right? We're going to decompose that into its components. So in order to beat the sword toward the inside line, my hand has to travel from my right to my left to impact the sword. Mm-hmm. Then right. it needs to return to center line. So traveling to the left and then returning to center and then moving forward. That's three Legos. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, every one of those has a before, during, and after, and every one of them could be countered inside each movement. Mm-hmm. So instead of the Italian system that you're used to seeing with the rapier, like... Uh, single tempo, double tempo, half tempo. Um, you're going to see that we'll take an action, we'll decompose it into movements. It could have 15 movements in it, and then we'll lay out a countering system for every single piece of that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's, it's a little funky. It's very, it sounds, so one of the challenges of Bolognese is 
to make it work, you have to assume A, that it works and that there are things in there which are implicit, which are made explicit by better and later authors who have the advantage of having access to the Bolognese art to describe their art, right? So uh, the Bolognese were essentially almost the first people to print fencing manuals other than Pietro Monte's fun little book on how to fight with various weapons. Uh, it was not in any way systematic. And the Bolognese are the first to present a systematic approach to describing fencing, whereas the people who had access to those books could look at that and go, ah, you know, like I can do, I can explain this, I can explain that better. You know, kind of again, how you're describing in early HEMA, you could have the wrong idea for 10 years because there wasn't existing data to or people who had existing data to counteract what you were saying. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? It does. It does. It makes absolute sense. And so that that's where when we talk about Bolognese time, we don't know exactly what's implicit. So and one of the things that they'll do, like in the Anonimo, is you might be going into a, a guard that's low and offline to the left, and there's 20 various responses in the book that you can make from there. And um, presumably it's kind of depends on where you are in the motion at relative to your opponent is what's going to provide which of those is the optimal motion. It's just not nearly as well described as what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. I think even, even within that, I would like the Spanish, they have a reputation for being really, really complex. Yeah. Um, and that's fair. I mean, sometimes simple things are challenging to understand or mm -hmm. to explain. But when you boil Spanish true school fencing down to its core, uh, there are two things I need to know about the movement of my adversary's sword. And is, is it wounding me at this moment? Right? Mm -hmm. We call those executive movements. So is, mm -hmm. is the motion of the sword about to wound me? Or is it dispositive, which is prepping or some sort of random movement, maybe a twitch, anything that's not a wounder? If it's not a wounder, then I'm going to show you the right angle. I'm going to put the point on you and threaten you in some way. Uh, if it is a wounder, then I'm going to put my sword on top of your sword and cover it. And then yeah. I'm going to do something else. That's that. very simple. It's very simple. And if you're not moving, then I'm going to cover your sword with my sword and try to step into the pocket. So you're either putting your sword on top of their sword or you're extending your sword into Guardia di Faccia. Yeah, or, or we would call it right angle, but yeah. You, Sounds like you, wanna, you want to load something? I'm going to put the point in your face. Now what are you going to do? Right. You're going to hit me? I'll put my sword on top of your sword. Did I get it? No. Well, let's find it again, and I'll put it on top. Right. Whatever okay. I have cool. to do. Yeah, so to kind of roll back to your your previous point, it, it is interesting because I think Manchiolino and Morazzo both do discuss the idea of acting within the moment of your opponent's tempo and, and within the moment of their action. Like uh, Manchiolino specifically says that the correct tempo, um, especially, um, I think he says, I, I can't remember if this is when he's talking about fighting against a, another skilled fencer, um, but is to act in the in the in the time of their motion. So when they when they start a motion, if you can interrupt their motion or make a smaller movement within their motion, then that's that's you know that's that's the sauce. That's where you really want to be, right? Chef's and so yeah. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah, chef's yeah. kiss for sure. And then Manchi or Morazzo gives a much more kind of uh, chaotic description of this later on in his uh, in his longsword section, where he he talks about the same thing, um, 
And, you know, he, he talks about the Bolognese concept of rising and falling, which is a defensive technique that is kind of illustrated a few times throughout Marazzo and Manciolino. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it's in, in the anonymous, Stephen. Do you uh, know what? if they, if he, does he use rising and falling at all? No. No. Okay. Um, but mean, Manciolino and Marazzo both do. Yeah, but the the concept is, you know, and then and then Marazzo goes on this long diatribe and he makes it really confusing cuz he's tying like two broad big concepts together in this one crazy thing cuz he's he's Marazzo, but um I I find it interesting that there there is still this notion of that being there. Um but I wonder if it's just not fully developed or if it's not like it's explicitly stated enough where it becomes a little bit more obvious. Like with an author like Vigiani, we get a really great description where he brings in Aristotle and uses Aristotle to describe tempo and like what time should look like and, and all of that. I mean, I think from an Italian influenced writer later on, probably the best description that we get of, you know, creating smaller tempos within the context of a larger tempo really comes from the Anonimo Vienna. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in the, in the Bolognese tradition, we have mezzo tempo, which is attacking into preparation, contra tempo, which is attacking into their attack and then tempo, which is just defending when they attack. So it's, yeah. it doesn't sound nearly as deep or complex as the LVD take on it. Well, we've, so we've got like, the Lego-based movement system, where every movement is a vector, and we can decompose. But when we... And our timing system... So we talk about end-time actions, right? Our timing system is really German-based. Uh, <laughs> so we, we take before, during, and after. And we've got three things that we're looking at there. So you talk about, like, first intention, right? For us, that's proprio. Adversary has not moved, so I'm going to strike them. <laughs> and then uh, we have... Uh, let's skip to the third one. So that proprio is a before tempo. They're not moving, I strike. And then transferido, they're attempting to wound me. So transferido in the books is defined as the outcome that my adversary wished, I take for myself. So they wish to wound me, I will wound them. Mm -hmm. That covers both counterattacks and parry reposts. Okay. And then we have this middle one in the during tempo, which this is the really sweet stuff. Heard a dog fight going on. <laughs> yeah. So in the middle, we've got this during tempo, and the during tempo is uh, called appropriado. Okay. And that is, if the adversary gives me a dispositive movement, I wound them. And I can force them to give me those dispositive movements. Uh, what's an example of a dispositive movement? A dispositive movement is any movement which isn't a wound. Okay, so, so this is like a trying to gain... It's like a, a movement against your weapon rather than a weapon move against yourself? Um, let's say that I, I cover the adversary's sword with mine. Mm -hmm. I step forward so I've got dominant position, and then I threaten their face. That parry that they make is a dispositive movement because it's not going to wound me. Uh -huh. So as soon as they start to parry, I change and attack a different spot. Or if we're at distance and they decide they're going to try to cover my sword with theirs, I can act in that tempo. In any movement which isn't a wound, allows me to act in tempo. Okay, got it. So that's basically putting them in the knock. Uh, yeah. To get all German about it. All right, cool. Um, let's see here. So we got we have a bunch of questions, so we should probably yes, get yes. on these. Okay, uh, so can you just briefly give a sense of how did LVD 
differ from previous forms of Iberian fencing? It is a show-me tradition. So before um, Carranza shows up, Mm -hmm. a lot of fencing was assertive. So the author will tell you something, and you're expected to believe it, right? There, you need to trust. And Carranza has no patience for that at all. He, he, he's the show me. So everything must be demonstrably true. And then he's going to give you the science that will allow you to prove it. So it can't be just true for me. You also have to be able to test this and show it. So he has examples in the book about how an extended arm has the, the greatest reach. And there's, he shows all the different possibilities and he can prove it. And then he says, if you try to act on information that you don't have, like you just throw an attack in false time, mm-hmm. the adversary can attack you at the same time. Right. right. So don't act on information that you can't have, which is something that a lot of fencers do. A lot of bad fencers do. <laughs> it's all beginning fencers. Well, sure. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to attack and see what happens. I'm just going to throw an attack and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he, he really is about um, proof. Um, Got he's going to make a strong argument. The Carranza text is a meta text about what makes good fencing. And we don't really get the tradition notated and written down well until we get to Pacheco. Oh, so that's kind of Pacheco's role is he's sort of the the person who describes how the philosophy turns into fencing. He he really does provide us a good handbook. Uh, well, his I say handbook. He's like he's writing like a thousand pages at a shot. Oh my. Uh, he I think of Pacheco as a great notator. So he really takes the Spanish tradition, notates it. He's he's a lot like a classical fencing author. Uh-huh. Um, he's really probably one of the great theorists of fencing in general, probably the most prolific fencing author ever because he's written thousands and thousands of pages on fencing. He takes this meta text on fencing. He takes the fencing of his age, and he creates this really coherent fencing system, which is in some ways a lot like classical fencing, Okay, and he presents it and... It, it really works. And after that, everybody is doing what Pacheco does, mostly. So um, Carranza's ideas kind of are sort of out there, but they don't necessarily displace everything that's existent in Spain at the time. Sort of. Carranza was super popular, but his book was okay. not a handbook. Um, but there were people, if we get out to um, the, the San Luca de Barrameda, which is this town in southern Spain, and we get to Seville, you're going to see a lot of people that are Carranza influenced. Like Thibault was in that town and mm-hmm. he leaves mm-hmm. and he goes and creates this tradition of fencing, which looks a lot like us. Right. Uh, he's sort of the black sheep of the family, but he's <laughs> different from Pacheco. So if, if you were in that area, probably you got a piece of that. And we know that Carranza's sons uh, visited the Philippines and there's some back and forth between the Esprima mm. traditions and... Um, the Spanish traditions. We know that there's a Carranza school that flourished in the Americas. So when Carranza leaves for the Americas, that's the point at which Pacheco suddenly safe to make his move, right? He was derivative. And so he's like, oh, all hail the great Carranza. Read my book. Read my right. republication of Carranza stuff. Carranza goes... <laughs> Carranza, and he can't challenge him to a duel because he's too far yet, away. Not yet, right? Like, as soon as like, Carranza gets his butt on that boat and he sails away, Pacheco's like, all right, Carranza is a liar. It's, a, it's me. It's me. And so, oh, so he totally throws him under the bus, huh? He does. He does. And then, uh. but, but the problem is Pacheco, Pacheco is like the patron saint of internet trolls. Back when the internet moved on... <laughs> 
on, <laughs> on paper, um, he would write these diatribes against, if you were a good fencing author, Pacheco probably wrote some, some mean things about you. So all the Facebook artic- all the Facebook fights and everything like that, or Reddit, um, we can trace that all back. I mean, we're participating nice. in a fine tradition of hating each other. <laughs> Going way back. Fencing. Yeah. Ah, oh, awesome. All right. Um, so is there a kind of nature of Spanish or Iberian fencing? Is there particular commonalities? Um, I haven't been exposed to a lot of it. One thing I've noticed is that Spanish fencing seems to be very guard light, whereas Italian fencing seems to be very guard heavy. I think that's fair. The better we get at the footwork for Spanish fencing, the more it starts to look like. Uh, so let's say let's let's back up a little bit. Yeah. If we look at Italian fencing, the guard tends to sink a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to sink and we're going to lower our center of balance. Uh, and we're in this, this, this guard is a fortress, right? Fiori and the elephant. Um, we, right. we can move, we're centered, and we have good connection to the ground. Right. If you look at Spanish fencing, we're much more upright. So instead of something like a low fighting style, we're a little bit more like boxing. And the fighting that we do tends to float and flow a little bit more like dancing. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to look at capoeira footwork mm-hmm. and the way that they flow, that seems to be more in line with what we do and the better we get at this this is where like i talked about my own biases like my bias is classical italian and renaissance fencing footwork so i had to push that away and move into a more flowing footwork and it's a continuous struggle for me personally to keep those two things separate my students who study Spanish fencing, their footwork is way better than mine. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay. So like being a Gen 1 researcher and fencer, it, sometimes it kind of sucks because like you train somebody and they're better than you and you're like, I hate you. And then they train somebody else and the Gen 3 fencer is better than both of you. Ooh. Every, <laughs> you the hate just rolls downhill. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's sort of an advantage to that. Uh, if you don't have any martial arts experience, it's it's pretty easy to learn to move at an angle. Certainly, if you don't have any fencing experience, it, it would never occur to you to move in a straight line. I mean, after day one of lessons where somebody says, yeah, if you go here, you're safe, but... If you're trained to like get down that line fast after your retreating foe, like you're gonna just kind of have that built into your motors, into your you know your muscle memory. Yeah, and just to kind of build on what you said, like that low stance, it because it's so stable. Mm-hmm. Like the first thing that we do with students that walk in the door is we line them up, we stand them up, and then we do opposition footwork. So one person stands at the front of the room. And that person walks back and forth with an upright posture. Mm-hmm. And then they try to do quick changes of direction. And the whole class has to follow that. Right. And then we, okay. uh, So we're moving back and forth. Everybody's upright. And we're doing these quick changes. Because I want you to get exposure to those quick changes with an upright body. And then we uh, do it again in a circle. Because those lateral changes are way harder. And if you're not used to how to break and redirect your... your your feet, the, yeah. Your feet. The momentum, yeah. Yeah, basically a human body is a weight on a stick. Right. And when you stand that up, you topple really easily. So we need to learn how to handle that toppling effect by practicing a lot. I think a lot of it, I think, is like redirecting where you're toppling into the direction that you want to go. So you, you lose balance and you topple off to the left or you topple off to the right. You just kind of follow along that. Yeah, well, if you think about the way that a motorcyclist will lean into the turn, mm-hmm. 
Um, we mm-hmm. get our quick change of direction by leaning into the uh, into the direction where we want to go. All right. Did you have any anything to add there, Joshua? So we're kind of discussing body mechanics. Um, as with that upright stance and sort of the more upright posture and uh, sort of casual uh, light on your feet flowing style, how do you engage the rest of the body? How are the hips involved in the engagement with the shoulders and everything like that in terms of the overall dynamic? That is a really great question. You know, one of the sad things about modern people is that we have lost a lot of our physical culture. Mm. And so we walk in, people walk into that space and they are not used to coordinating all those things. Mm -hmm. And what we have found, and I don't know if this is true for you, but it's certainly true for the older styles, is fine correction is really tough for people. And so when we want to teach body mechanics, we go to gross action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we have found is we get a lot of value out of teaching people greatsword. And because the greatsword is so big and the uh, it's it can be easier for us to teach the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we teach things like when you step and when you're delivering force, are you aligning your hips in the direction of the force? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, when you're chambering up, a defense with the greatsword? Are you presenting your true edge? What's the slope of the weapon? All of these things we can teach with these big weapons, and they're a little bit easier because the actions are bigger. And then we set that down, and we go back to the hand, the sword in one hand. Everything gets smaller and finer, but they've had that exposure already. So uh, I think there's something to that. Um, we teach big, and then we learn to go fine, and then we're, we're going to get you with the reps. So like the footwork that we were talking about, you're going to do it a lot. Mm. And um, we don't want you to do it necessarily exactly like I do it because I need to do it for my body. Mm-hmm. I want you to learn to do it for your own body within certain restrictions. Mm-hmm. Carranza said that he hated to see tall fencers fence like short teachers. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen that happen. I've seen short fencers fence like tall fencers because they had tall teachers. And what he said about students was, that every student is a musical instrument and you need to tighten some strings and loosen others until the instrument is in tune with itself. Interesting. And only then will it make That's beautiful. Music. That is really good. Carranza's got, he's this master of metaphor. That's awesome. Nice. All right. Um, so since we're a Bolognese podcast, we're particularly interested in fencing intersections with Spanish fencing. Uh, so again, I don't know much about Spanish fencing, but I've learned a little bit here or there. Uh, so there's three moves that are basic motions which seem to have analogs uh, between them. And the first is this basic idea of a Tahoe. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a bit about a Tahoe? Is it just a fancy way of saying put your true edge over the scary thing? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I'm going to make you an honorary oki for that phrasing. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, there are a couple ways I say this. I say like, okay... Um, if if something scares you, point at it. Right. And turn your knuckle bow towards the bad guy's sword. Yeah. Okay. Both of those. But there's a, there's a lot going on. When Pacheco defines it, he has a really formal definition. He says that a Tahoe is subjection from above. It should have equal or greater degrees of strength. It should close the line so that the adversary can't hit you with a single movement. 
and then it should not participate in extremes. And that extremes is a callback to Aristotle's virtues, which are between two extremes. Um, so it's he, okay. Go what ahead. he means is um, that you don't want to make a bind in the weak, and you don't want to make a bind in the strong. You want to mm -hmm. bind in the middle. So German Fulin. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like get mechanical advantage and get advantage of the guard. I think so. Um, if we look at the Spanish fight in phases, like we have sort of distance phases. So when we're out at lunging distance, we're going to show you the point. And mm -hmm. then the next thing that we need to do, somebody's going to get close, mm -hmm. and that person will be either attacking in false time, in which case I'll cover their sword, and now I'm in the pocket because they closed, or I'll try to take their sword with mine, and I'll step into the pocket. That's what a Tahoe is. It's either we're going to step in and take, and it sort of takes an offensive kind of formation, mm -hmm. or we're going to defend with defensive steel, just like a parry. But instead of lateral motion, we're downward like a plow, like flug, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not we're not pushing to the side. We're dropping our hilt and presenting a plowing surface so that they'll slide into our strong. So it's interesting. I wonder why the general Italian so the Spanish preference is for the sword straight ahead, and the Italian preference does seem to be for the sword low, pointing up. Mm -hmm. So like a, a porta di ferro stretta type of position. That seems to be just kind of the generally preferred thing. And I wonder why that is. I don't know. It's a good question. I I have some interesting stories about Porter de Ferro Strata. So when in Pacheco's first book he says, the adversary coming on guard to you with Porter de Ferro Strata. I call this Pacheco's yeehaw attack. <laughs> um, what he says is basically the adversaries presented their weakened high line, but my arm is already extended in the high line. Why shouldn't I just hit him? Right? So he's just going to try to blast through the weak at that point. I think that's young Pacheco when he still had the warranty on his knees. And he <laughs> <laughs> um, so I... If, as an Italian fencing master, I would say that if you have the hand low and the hip, with the hilt and the tip high, then you provide coverage over the line. You get a good closure just by moving your hand. So, unfortunately, I'm on both sides of that fight. <laughs> oh. Okay. Uh, so, another one that I'm aware of. Um, is and this is something that appears repeatedly in the Anonymo Bolognese. Seems to be, I believe you guys call it a movement of conclusion. Yeah, grappling is that correct? With the hilts. Yeah, yeah. And so, can you explain a little bit more about this? This is really great because um, you set. I, we set this up really well. So, if we're out at, I, I talked about how the fight has distances, mm -hmm. and that first mm -hmm. distance is outside at lunging distance. We're going to show them the point. We call that right angle. Then the next distance. Is that middle place with the Ataha where we're trying to get control of the weapon? And if, for whatever reason, the fight gets closer than that, we're going into grappling space. Mm -hmm. right, so we've got those three phases. We've got out, middle, and very close. When we get to very close, um, either we're uh, the way that our school breaks it down, this is a more modern way of breaking it down. We're either strong in the bind or weak in the bind. Yeah. If we're weak in the bind, we're going to yield through and lift our hand to close that threat and uh -huh. then seize their hand or hilt if we're strong in the bind then we just cover and step in and, and take their hilt the, the thing about the spanish that makes that really valuable is that they're not necessarily interested in lethal termination of a fight so if a drunk 16 year old shows up and tries to throw down with you in your fencing school 
you have options and you can seize their sword, take it away, and then walk them over to their father and talk to them about fencing lessons. <laughs> cool. In the uh, in the anonymo, it appears that it's when you've gained on the inside, or you have you know you have advantage on the inside, and you begin your thrust. Uh, so they would then take their point uh, off to their left in order to cover that thrust. You then you would come in with a reverse cut. A descending reverse cut that would require them to come up to cover that, and you would then be able to grab the outside of their sword or the outside of their wrist. So you kind of end up making that cut, and you come in with your hands at the same time. Mm-hmm. That that sounds pretty similar to what you're talking about. It could be. Um, I think we're there's a piece of Spanish fencing called the movement of diversion. Okay. And if somebody covers my sword with theirs, you're, have you ever seen Italian saber hanging parries? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a hanging seven and a hanging first. Right, right. The front hanging parry and back hanging parry, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like St. So George. Yeah, if you push my sword on the inside line, then I'm going to lift my hilt up to cover my right cheek and yep. show you my true edge. And it'll be like I'm showing you my wristwatch. Um, yeah. And then with... Like with that, I can step around that cover and seize the back of your hilt, and then I'll load a big cut, and I can cut you in the back of the head. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. It, it's actually interesting. That's that's actually exactly how I see uh, Morazzo's first defense against the thrust. From, same here. Uh, yeah, is is basically going with that same wrenching action where you're going to the outside, pulling, and then it sets up that reverse. It's a really total bread and butter move. Like we, we, it is. Uh, yeah. I taught this to uh, Maestro Murakoshi before he was a fencing master. And um, so what he found was he went down and fenced with the SCA, and he, it was people who'd been training Italian rapier. So they were better than average. And then he would show them the right angle and say, go ahead, take my sword. You know, give me that stranger. I'm showing you what you want. And then they would blast him with this huge lunge, and he would just fold out behind it and flow past it and wreck him. like that's one of the things if you if you're an italian fencer and you're gonna face a spanish fencer be aware that if you put pressure into that sword you're gonna get it right back because we're we're like if you've seen the picture in agrippa of him attacking the round stone Uh uh-huh right so and the idea of that picture he's attacking around a ball you strike the ball the ball will roll away from the strike right that's our footwork is uh, we get pressure we're going to roll away from the force Right. We're going to fold up on you like a soft taco. (laughs) Nice. That that also seems to have analogs in the Anonymo where uh, the – I believe it is actually the same idea when you get the – certainly on the outside, if you lose the line on the outside, then you you would yield into basically a saber parry of one and do that, that same kind of cut. But it's done on a retreat rather than on an advance. Yeah, and we do the same thing. That's the other diversion where you're basically looking at your wristwatch instead of showing it. Right. Doesn't he give that a name, Stephen? The I technique? I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's really early in the... Uh, maybe he did in the introduction. Yeah. I think it's important to understand that Italian fencing wasn't always this linear, right? That's right. an important thing that the, the Bolognese yeah, for sure. like scholars bring back is that there was a whole tradition that was circular uh, with the footwork. I'm pretty confident once we got rid of fencing equipment, and especially if we started using sharp swords, we would find that uh, fencing footwork would naturally become a whole lot more circular. 
I think people are naturally, once they see, because, you know, the point of a sword, of a sharp sword, is a pretty terrifying thing. At least I, yeah. I found it to be so. And I'm if I had to move anywhere near it, it's always going to be to the side, unless it tries to beat me, and then I'm going back to the other side. I'm, yep. I'm always staying, I'm moving away from that bad boy. Like Kappa Pharaoh, who's one of the more linear people you're going to meet, he says, against people who circle, and... He's got this argument where he rails against it. Look, those people, they gain my sword really well, way better than they should, and I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) What what are you trying to tell me here, Capifero? You're telling me that it works really well. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. All right. So then there's uh, this. We kind of alluded to this earlier. The third one seems to be this idea of moving forward um, at an angle, usually – I like to describe it as into the bind. So if you are crossed on the inside, you'd be moving a little bit towards your left. Or if it was on the outside, you'd be moving a little bit in towards your right to kind of uh, basically to gain the advantage of the guard with that lateral motion. I, I Correct me if I'm wrong, but that is also this how the Spanish would approach a spot of solo fight. I think so. Um, so we, we probably qualify that. The problem with Destreza is where everything depends on the context. So we're sort of a science engine, mm-hmm. and we we load in a situation, and we crank it through the science engine, and then we, we're supposed to get a unique result out. So <laughs> giving giving a, like a really like a generic answer, I, my students hate me because I always say it depends, <laughs> on the context. it depends on how tall you are, whether it's raining, is it a Thursday? <laughs> but generally speaking, if I want to retain the bind, then I'm going to step into it. And if I, but if I feel that arm relax in the bind, like they're they're lo- unloading, then I'm going to step away and throw a cut. So it's about. You ever see that movie where, like Indiana Jones, maybe is running on the top of a train and the bridge is out? Yeah, yeah. Right, and you know that you got to jump at some point, right? Right. But when you feel that train start to go out from underneath you, that's when. That's you when you jump. You're, you're, you're holding on to the last minute. Right. When you feel a sword with your sword. And you feel like a, st- a firm foundation. That's when you glide, right? You thrust in opposition, and so you can step into that bind. But when you feel it start to drop out from underneath you, that's when you change and you step the other direction. You throw that cut because they're loading. They're, they're going to come off and try and cut you on the other side. Right. So that's yeah. Okay, that makes sense. They're, they're going for that double, and you got to beat them to it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, I've been kind of hogging the questions here for a while. Joshua, do you want to take some? Yeah, so, um, you know, in the Polynesian system, talking about kind of that idea of, of defense and maybe this can feed in a little bit to an earlier question that I had. I was trying to ask until uh, my dogs freaked out up there. <laughs> but uh, um, the um, the Polynesians seem to use the false edge or a half turn of the hand um, and body to and the body to control the enemy to the outside. Does LVD treat the outside differently than the inside uh what about earlier forms of iberian fencing yeah so the earlier forms like common school we have pretty good evidence that they're going to turn the hand they're going to usually turn the edge in Mm -hmm. for that and for us i talked about how a virtue exists between two extremes Mm -hmm. and what we would prefer to do is we're going to extend our hand with the true edge down as if we're shaking hands Mm -hmm. and that Edge down, true edge down, that's our strong edge. We want to keep that kind of in the middle so that we can present it to either side quickly. Mm-hmm. And instead of turning the hand all the way, what we're going to do is we're going to carry the tip up. 
and mm. kind of give it a half turn. So we're we're creating that inclined plane that's going to slide force down to our strong, and we're pointing towards that threat. Um, and if you change, I've only changed a little bit, and so I can change back. We're not real big on the back edge. We're, we're more true mm-hmm. edge people. And that's the truth, and anybody that doesn't do that will probably burn into Strands of Hell forever. <laughs> <laughs> do you all get together and like find the person who dared to use their false edge and stone them? That's a pretty the great distress council. It's a pretty common joke. Well, we like the running joke is okay. If you're gonna go to distress of heaven, you just need to figure out who's manning the gate and then give them the answers that they want. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we know that Murato was a heretic, this is actually lining up pretty well because yeah. it sounds like Carranza was, you know, probably like the most saintly person that there was. So I, I have to tell you what Pacheco said about people like Murato. I, he named him specifically. He said that their their writings wander through the earth like a uh, like this vast horrendous monster, a tournament of their vanities. <laughs> I told you he was the patron saint of internet trolls. He, he was ready to say mean stuff about everybody. I, well, I I actually I don't disagree with that. You know, it's 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 actually really interesting. I mean, I'm I've kind of lately. Um, Kind of going back to that concept of vectors, though, um, in terms of like vectors for specific areas of defense and and kind of like progression of parries for like different areas of attack and things like that. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, especially with Manchiolino, is like kind of going back to that whole idea of like Gordia de Facci, you've got your point going forward, right? So you can meet, um, you know, you could potentially meet somebody giving you a Mandrito or a cut from the right with either going into Gordia de Faccio, which would end up being Contra Tempo, or you can meet them with a, a Mesomandrito that would just kind of cover the line, or you can come behind it with that Gordia de Testa, right? And you can kind of set it off. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I found is between those three specific actions, those are basically all of Manchiolino's parries. Like everything that he does really frames around those three specific parries. So you have this really tight, almost triangle of defense mm-hmm. where you can cover like all these specific lines in it. Um, how do you think that like differs or is, is relative or similar to that, sim- that, that kind of idea of uh, vectors? I, well, so I'm going to step away from vectors on that. I'm going to talk a little bit about the way that we would think about that kind of defense. Right. So, we got an inside yeah. and outside, and you're talking also about overloading. That's a, sort of a programming term, but borrowing an attack as a defense. And mm-hmm. when I said that Strez is a pallet system, I talked about like putting the point on somebody that's defensive or offensive. It might be a provocation, um, but it's usually the same action. If we look at the parries, I can also parry with cuts. right? So right. my full circular cut could be a full circular cut that lands on your sword. My half cut could be a cut just in the same, a parry in the same way that you're using it. If we think about that, then the Spanish word for the full circular cut is tajo. Mm-hmm. The Spanish word for the half cut is medio tajo or half cut. Mm-hmm. And then there's a tajo, which is an interrupting, right? Which kind of exists on that continuum, maybe, as the smallest mm-hmm. form of these three. Uh, and it's, it's just a, a a cut that interrupts the weapon. If we look at the way that we're interested in defending, um, what we're going to do is we're going to put that point forward 
and keep it proximate to the adversary's sword hand. Um, because if we're close to that hilt, then we are close to where wherever that threat's going to originate. And we can just float there. So if they load a cut on this side, then we'll, we'll turn our hand into that and point towards it. And if it's a feint, because we're proximate to their hand, it's very easy for us. They're going to be a lot longer in their tempo than we are. So we'll just pivot. And they can float back and forth as many times as they want. But we're going to oppose big action with small action. And we'll get that advantage by putting the point out there and staying close to their sword hand. That's actually really interesting because, you know, we see that a lot with, um, you know, Bolognese defenses in general where they talk about going to the sword hand. And I wonder if that's almost a kind of like a, a missing nomenclature from just a, a dynamic sense of just that's how you should be making a good parry. And it just kind of comes across as like you're you're making this parry towards the sword hand or, you know, a mezzamandrito towards the sword hand rather than just kind of like the directionality of the sword hand mm -hmm. to make that parry. Yeah, I, if you just keep your point close to the adversary's sword hand, you're probably going to be pretty loaded for any any kind of setup they're going to give you yeah and if they don't want to eat it on their hand they're probably going to have to redirect whatever they were doing into you and create that bind again all over or they're going to eat it on the hand which is pretty much game over for a sword fight yeah i'd hope so i i i, I can never quite tell i had a friend who was unloading the dishwasher and got a knife through her arm because mm -hmm. she had stuck her knives in upside down so she comes out with this knife sticking out of her arm, and uh, like everybody goes, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. And then we like put bandages on her, and um, and then we're, so we sit down, and she's sort of sitting there thinking, I'm like, do you think he could have kept sword fighting? And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then she says, yes, yes, I do. Oh, wow, that's awesome. All right, so that maybe this, the shot to the hand isn't the one then. It just depends. I've talked to other people. So like, like meat, um, you're probably not going to notice, but bone hurts like hell. Mm -hmm. So right. I had somebody yeah. who took a sword, uh, let's not mention any names, but took a sword through the leg, and when it hit the bone, every other rational thought dropped out of their mind, except please don't let them pull that sword out of my leg. Oh, wow. I, I remember when I was starting out, I was fencing with this guy with light protection, and he hit the nerves on the outside of my forearms, and I couldn't actually hold a sword or a buckler after he hit each one. It, like paralyze the nerves out on the outside uh for a couple minutes so that could also be maybe where those uh those shots of the arm are coming from they're also fight enders if you cut that nerve you know uh, that's just it there's so many variables we never know so i always fuss at my students like once you hit somebody you need to exit in good order and if they don't mm -hmm. then i'm gonna i don't even care if i'm dead right who cares i'm just <laughs> i'm taking you with me chump that's why they, the, the bolognese have <laughs> exactly. that rule that you have the the time of half a step you know to to hit and it's still a legitimate hit like that's how they, yeah. they weigh that out like you, there's never anything where you just assume that they're dead tebow's got this thing um you know, he's one of our black sheep distressy guys, but he's going to hit you um, so hard that he drives his sword all the way through the, to the hilt and knocks you down with the hilt. By driving <laughs> that, that's just like, that's my safety net is that I'm going to hit you so hard that I'll go all the way through you and then I'll, I'll drop what? you to the ground with my hilt. <laughs> with the hilt. Then he's, maybe I'll be all right. He sounds memeable for sure. <laughs> yeah. Somebody wants to turn it up to 11. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you were talking about the moment, the progression to conclusion before. Yeah. And I almost wonder, too, if 
you know, when you're, when you are striking, obviously you're going to create an opening where you can get in on either the outside or the inside of somebody. And I feel like you can still continue to pursue that moment of conclusion. I actually find, at least from my fencing practice, that it's usually safer to continue forward rather than just kind of giving an open cut that makes you have to make that panic response where you're pulling out and, and having to cover yourself as you're, you're fleeing. I know that it exists for sure. Um, you know, throughout the Bolognese system, we have a lot of traversado cuts and things like that. But um, at least from my experience, it's been that, you know, the safest thing, unless I'm fighting, unless my opponent is denying me close play in some way, and they're, they're trying to fight at wide play, um, maybe then I might have to make some sort of a covering blow. But if they give me the opportunity to continue to pursue and go to conclusion, then that's usually where I found that I'm safest. It, de- it depends for me. Um, I have a like a mixed relationship with conclusions because I really like them a lot. Mm-hmm. And as a short guy, I'm sort of like feisty and I need to get into people's space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... The problem with conclusions for me is that I, I want to get in there and do them. So I, I have to remind myself that I need to be responsive. Right? Rather than plan a conclusion, I need to find them. Mm-hmm. If I try to plan, I'm going to get like blasted in the face for sure because I'm thinking too far ahead. If, but if I can read the pressure in the sword and be responsive <laughs> to it, that's when I get the good ones. If I yeah. need to like throw and get out, like there are two ways I move in for entering for me personally. I'm going to control metal, or I'm going to control tempo. And if, so if I if I show you a threat and you go to parry, then I've got control of the tempo, and then I can step in. And I don't have your sword at that point, so I need to do something. I'm going to wound you if I can, and then I'm going to get out. So I'll I'll throw a cut through a defensive posture that will protect me in the line where your sword is, and then I'll use that to exit, and I'll be back in right angle when I when I finish the cut. Does that make any sense? Totally. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. If you if you're a bolognese, it's how exactly how you'd approach fighting with a sword and buckler or a sword and targa. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Always like, oh, now we af- stick them out. I'm afraid we're probably pretty close family relatives that just hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, really, Spanish fencing is just a derivation of the stuff that's in the anonymous bolognese explained oh. well. Oh, well, oh, I was going to say that Manciolino was actually the father of, of Destreza and that, you know, we're just we're just starting to touch on the surface of that here in this podcast. No, they can't be because he uses all false edge, man. Oh, I, right. Yeah. I sort of think that we're doing sword fighting and you guys are just doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, so... Let's let's move beyond the unaccompanied sword. Um, in this season of L'Arte de l'Armée, uh, we're particularly focused on fencing in a military context. Uh, the Spanish were known for their sword and rotella men, the ro- rotoleros. Um, can you tell us anything about the Spanish use of the rotella and other uh, accompaniments? Well, when it comes to the, the Spanish bucklers, we don't have a lot inside the true school tradition. Probably the person that would be best to talk to about that would be uh, Tim Rivera because he translated Godinho, and Godinho has a good section on that. I, I'm not this. Uh, I'm just not going to be as good as he is at it. Mm-hmm. Um, the places where I intersect that, um, we talk about getting around the buckler, or we talk about or, or uh, buckler and montante. 
And usually what that is, is we're going to throw a threat, uh, get that buckler high or low, and then we're just going to strike where that we've, we're going to get them into obedience, get, get them to move their buckler and go where the buckler isn't. <laughs> I, I'm afraid that um, even though Carranza and Pacheco were both military, um, the, the Destreza tradition is largely civilian dueling sword. Okay. And they, they tend to believe that um, sword in one hand is like the queen, the, the, the best example of skill. We get a couple of people, so we, we do great sword as well, which mm-hmm. is definitely a battlefield or bodyguard weapon. And then we also do Iberian flail, uh, and we do sword and dagger uh, from Figueredo and uh, Tejedo. Okay. Interesting. All right, so it's a, a different kind of approach to the uh, unaccompanied arms than we would be having. All right, cool. So the LVD then really just is focused on the sword alone as the as the like dueling sword. Through the Pacheco line, yeah, but the swords changed. So when we get to, when we're in the mid sixteen hundreds, you're looking at what we moderns would call a side sword. Mm-hmm. And then um, we start to get longer weapons and add cop hilts in like the 1640s. By the time we get to 1705, those weapons are so light and fast at that point that the tradition starts to radically change in some key ways. Still very much recognizable. Uh, And then we're all the way through into the small sword and saber era. Um, It gets a little funky when you get into those areas, and there's a lot of French influence but still recognizably part of the family. Interesting. So there's a through line that goes all the way through the 1800s then for Spanish yeah. hunting? and sadly it died. So there were some big wars, right? And um, Yeah, they had that big old buzzkill in the, in the 30s, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. I have a historical saber uh, that I got off eBay for less than the price of one of our dueling swords, really, like the modern ones we buy. And... It's so good. It's so well made that when you, it's it has no blunt. It goes down to that butter knife thin tip, and uh-huh. when you press that tip against the ground, you get this perfect bend in the last third of the blade. All the people that knew how to make that weapon, all the people that used it, they're all gone, and we lost them all in these great wars. And <sighs> this tragic loss. We still can't really create the the quality that they had then. Yeah, it's the equivalent of floor knowledge for fencing. It is, yeah. 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 Hmm. So I guess there's probably nothing on pole arms then. Um, it depends. I mean, uh, Thibaut's got some, uh, and he's got some stuff against guns, but I'm not really a Thibaut guy. Got it. Oh, I, I take that back. I'm sorry. Figueredo. Figueredo has, yeah, so Figueredo's, a great sword is part of our tradition. Okay. And what what Figueredo teaches the great sword people to do? That great sword's called the Montante. Uh huh. Um, he'll run pikes with it. So um, I have sequences. the The great sword rules uh, work like katas, mm-hmm. and some of them are in opposition to other weapons. So we've got a few rules against pikemen that we use. One of them is a series. It's a three attack combo, and it gets the pike moving back and forth so that you can run up the pike and, and whack the guy on the other end of it. Nice. And then the other one is basically uh, cover the adversary's pike with your sword and then do a flying, spinning jump 
and <laughs> that one it's super sweet I, i'm old <laughs> i can still mostly do it but i'm gonna at some point i'm gonna have to hand the spinning jump montante hit off to somebody younger <laughs> oh, that's awesome so the early spanish and this might be more of a historical question but mm-hmm. the early spanish managed to raise a fair bit of hell with regiments called tercios yeah. Um, with a mix of pikemen and rotoleros and gunners. Um, do you have any opinion as to what made them so effective? Oh, yeah. I mean, you already talked about the great captain, right? Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordoba. Yeah. That guy, like, he got beaten uh, in one of the early campaigns that he had. His troops were not well trained. And um, he takes them back to Spain. He reorganizes based on these guns. Uh, so he's got swords and shields pikes and guns and he puts them all into this one unit with the the guns on the sides and they're under the shelter of these pikes so anybody that wants to get to the guns has to go to the pikes anybody that wants to get to the pikes gets like flanking gunfire uh, yeah it, it it was a revolution in armed combat and they call him the the father of modern military warfare mm-hmm. just just and i'm sure you already know all this because you mentioned him earlier but um, yeah, he's he's legit good. Um, he is, and it, I I mean, he basically you know heralds the end of what we see as the sort of the height of the gendarmerie, like the the great um, French cavalry that's sort of terrorizing Italy, because he gives a, a framework for how to defeat it, which is mm-hmm. you know setting up a fixed position, having the pikes and the sort of the combined arms and everything like that. Um, and it isn't until 1512 that we really see a counter response, which is almost two decades later in a period of constant warfare, which is actually pretty significant if you think about it. I mean, that's that's a pretty long time when it comes to constant yeah. warfare and somebody finally figuring out how to change it. And, you know, the big the big get is at the Battle of Ravenna when Alfonso d'Este basically sets up his cannon enfilade and starts firing into their fixed position and then... Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's kind of game over from there. But, yeah, Pycatch um, isn't going to solve that problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it, it is interesting because, I mean, it's almost like an early, it's almost like an early take on, on trench warfare and, and responding to a mobile, heavy, heavy um, sort of, I guess, dominating force that can move but is also you know, relatively uh, um, short-ranged in a way, and having to deal with that. And, like, you know, trench warfare is relatively similar in that that's kind of what the machine gun was in terms of, like, later battlefields. And what it brought is it doesn't necessarily have a tremendous amount of range, but you're still talking about something that is relatively mobile um, and can provide a lot of firepower down and then you just have to respond to it by basically entrenching yourself and i think the lesson that we get from him like there's always going to if you get a new and disruptive technology figuring out the best way to use it that's like somebody's going to figure that out somebody who's creative and smart and then he unifies that with um discipline and training if we look at the (laughs) way that the I hate to be topical, and I don't want to be political, but if we look at the way that the war in Ukraine is playing out, um, the Ukrainians, 
coordinated with American military commanders for their training system. And they developed right. a disciplined and trained fighting force. While the, as best we understand it, the Russian military sort of slowly collapsed under the weight of corruption. And the difference in outcomes between those two military forces is really just stunning. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's actually... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I actually think that's why I, it's it's really interesting that Manchiolino ends up down there, is that from that context of... You know, because one of the one of the big innovations that um, Cordoba ended up sort of instilling within the the Spanish forces and and some of his military revolution was also, you know, how do you counter the pikes? So if you have a pike formation that has you know these uh, you know these gunners and and you have your light cavalry that can kind of ride around um, you know throwing javelins and things, um, how how do you deal with other pike formations? That was kind of the big question mark was how do you deal with the Swiss? And so his answer to that was to incorporate the sword and rotella men or the sword and buckler men into his formations. And then, you know, at sort of the tail end of that development, we see them pulling in intellectuals. If we can consider Manchialino an intellectual at the time or somebody who would have been considered an intellectual, somebody, you know, you're pulling in outside sources to say, Hey, what do you have to contribute to this, this idea that we're developing? Um, because I mean, obviously again, you know, we, we just talked about how this war particularly wasn't over at this point. I mean, it was still ongoing and the Spanish were still very much engaged with the French. So they were still, and the, and in the Swiss, um, to be specific because, you know, the Swiss were constantly being involved, but, um, you know, and then as you have that transition, um, towards, you know, I guess the League of Cambrai period, you start to fight against the Germans as well and the lands connects and you see this continuation of a need to develop that that counter opportunity, that, that something that can actually get in within those pike formations and take them out. And that was kind of the big experiment was either, you know, we see this a lot with either great swords or we see it with uh, sword and buckler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I mean, I you've got to bust them up. Yeah, yeah. That's, it, that putting in a, a mix of a sword and rotella guy in the middle of the formation, so that once they got into the push a pike, they just come through was was pretty brilliant. I have another interesting pike story, uh, which so I told you that Carranza had gone to the New World, and the settlement that he was running was plagued with pirates, mm-hmm. and um, because of the nature of this guy, when he got to the New World, he immediately got in a conflict with the rich and the church, and he was excommunicated because wow. of his ethics. Okay, uh, because of his ethics. He had too many ethics or not <laughs> yeah, enough? He was too ethical. So he, he said things like, yeah. okay, we need to create social programs so the poor have enough to eat. And if you're going to get into, if you're going to make natives work, then I want a notarized contract. Got it. Well, I guess they weren't at, Franciscans. <laughs> yeah, at the time, at the time, that's really notable. I mean, he's still a colonizing force, but um, he, he's really pretty moral. So at the point where the pirates are coming into the town, the all the rich, uh, they just flee immediately. And the people that are left are the poor, people who are racially mixed. Um, these are the people that Carranza like, pulled together for the last great battle of his life. And what he, he had some guns, he had some people, and 
some cattle prods, which he repurposed as pikes. They're just <laughs> long sticks. Nice. Yeah. Right. Same basic thing. Big pokey, and, pokey thing. Yeah. Right. And so they sharpened those up and then they lured the pirates into the town square and then they closed in on them from all sides with uh, these pikes and guns and just destroyed them. He wiped them out. Ooh, I see a side episode here one day. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Karan's life is amazing. And I, I loved the idea that he was. Sounds like a movie. He, it does. They, he needs a movie. He, he was yeah. so morally good that in the last great battle of his life, he was side to side with the poor and the, like the people who were most beat up by the society uh that was his great battle that's awesome that's amazing yeah that's beautiful all right so in in 1509 there was a scrum over loot between some bolognese troops and some spaniards in a fortress known as brisigalia near bologna the spanish seemed to have gotten their butts kicked would they have lost similarly <laughs> similarly if they were using lvd uh, let's put that differently. If Caranzo is there, I feel like it would have gone differently. <laughs> I, let's say this. Like, you got a bunch of mooks on one side and a bunch of Spanish on the other. And if Captain America shows up, <laughs> you, put your, you put your money on the side with Captain America. Awesome. I'm just saying, if Caranzo was there, there's a decent chance it would have swung the other way. All right. <laughs> well, sadly, we'll never know. I think he was he was not yet even a drop of wine in his mama's glass yet. Yeah, it was just a happy thought. I mean, the way that you talk about Carranza, I'm 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 deeply interested in this now. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think I need to get a, a copy guy, of this book. Okay, I'll tell you one more Carranza story. Okay, yeah. Um, so Carranza is... Um, He's gotten to the New World, and he's, he's really sick. Like, he can't get out of bed sick. And the, the pirates are going to attack the city. And, ugh, God, there are so many good Carranza versus the pirate stories. But I'm going I'm to tell you this one. So the doctor says, look, if you get out of this bed, I think you're going to die. And Carranza says, I would rather die between the bullets on that beach than between the sheets of this bed. Oh, yeah. So nice. he has his sons get him up. And he, he's so weak, he can't ride. Gonna, they put him on a donkey. And he's so weak, he can't ride the donkey. So they tie him down. And then he has his son lead him back and forth across the beach. And he's screaming orders to people that don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and the pirates are watching this. And they're freaked. They think that he's got a, they, that he's got troops. Like a hidden they, army somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> he, he basically just waves him off. Oh my god! On the beach. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, the guy's a stone cold. Uh, he's a beast. Yeah. The other right. story about him and the pirates. It's awesome. Let's save it. If you want to do another one, I'll. I'll tell so you does he? Thing. Does Carranza ever make his time to oh. the fair shores of Italy? Uh, not to my knowledge. Okay. He was all over Spain, uh, southern Spain, and then he's off to Honduras. Got it. All right. Cool. All right. Do you want to roll it through with that last one there, Steve? Yeah, I'll grab the last one. All right. I've got the million-dollar question for you here, Puck. Okay. All right. It's the early, 15th, uh, early 16th century, the 1500s, and you have been called to serve in a tertio. Would you take duty as a piker? A Rodolero or an Arcabousier, or would you try to get into the cavalry and why? Oh, man. 
I think I'd probably have to go with the cavalry for a few reasons. <laughs> I, I know, like, cavalry versus pikes is probably not the best choice, but when I used to fence in battles in the SCA, I was too short to stay in the line. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to, you know, I had to run around and make trouble. Oh. And, like, I was fast enough on my feet that I could get in. Like, I, one time I got into the back ranks and took out the enemy commander. Uh-huh. And then I would, I started yelling orders to the Vietnamese troops, and they were just doing whatever I <laughs> nice. would say. And, and, and I couldn't hit him in the back because that was against the rules. Right. So I tap one of them on the shoulder, like you, I need you to step out of the line right now. And then my friends would just boom, and they all go. <laughs> pull out another one. That's so messed up. <laughs> I mean, Carranza, Carranza was a captain of the cavalry, and. You know, down on the ground, there's so much guns and smoke, you're not going to be able to see. At least when you're in the cavalry, you can kind of see what's going on. Maybe yeah. get behind enemy lines and get right. in trouble. Yeah, most people seem to go for those horses. I guess oh. you can always ride away if the battle's going south. That's my backup plan. All right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. Well, that's all the questions we got for you, Puck. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, dude. It was super great talking with you. I hope you guys have a great night, and I appreciate you giving me some time to talk about the tradition. Yeah, yeah, we'll probably get yeah, no, to tap was... you back when we do our, go on our Carranza run. Oh, exactly, yeah. and yeah. and the fact that I am so intrigued by Carranza now is is you know due to your passion. That was awesome. Thank you. That guy's life is amazing. There's a lot a lot to get into there. Yeah, that was awesome. All right, great. Thanks, Puck. Thank you. Includes another episode of Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Puck Curtis again for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us. Next week's episode is going to feature Jen Yandels and Devin Borman talking about cavalry. All that you can imagine about cavalry using lances, using pole arms against people that are on horseback, whatever you can imagine. Uh, should be a fun episode. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends. Mm-hmm.